In May of 2020, internationally known evangelist and apologist Ravi Zacharias died. His death filled the evangelical world with a combination of sadness and joy. Sadness because such a great mind and great defender of the Christian faith, great evangelist, had passed. Joy because we all knew he had heard, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. In his lifetime, Ravi Zacharias had lectured in colleges all over the world. He had debated atheists and trained international evangelists alongside Billy Graham. His funeral was a big deal. Um, Speakers included Christian musician Lecrae, Vice President Mike Pence, and Tim Tebow. And a few weeks after Ravi's funeral, stories began to come out. Bad stories. And at first, most evangelicals dismissed them because they seemed so out of character for the man we all respected. But as the number of stories increased and the credibility of them was great, they couldn't be ignored. So Robbie Zacharias International Ministries, the ministry he founded, hired independent investigators to look into the accusations. And what they found was nothing short of horrifying. Robbie's public persona was nothing like his private life. Publicly, Robbie Zacharias was a gracious and courageous defender of the faith, tremendous evangelist for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Privately, however, Ravi was a man driven by perverted sexual lusts. Not only was he driven by these sexual desires, he was also a master manipulator who used God to manipulate women to gratify his desires. He told women things like, if you tell what we've done, it'll destroy my ministry and millions of people will go to hell and it'll be all your fault. What we're doing here isn't wrong. I deserve this as my reward for all I'm doing in ministry. Let's pray and thank God we get to enjoy one another in this way. The investigation showed not only had these activities gone back as far as they could tell, which was like 10 years, but it also went on up to the last days of his life. While on hospice care. In the, in the week prior to his death, Ravi had solicited sexy and nude pictures from women through text message. The length and the breadth of what Ravi Zacharias had done could not be explained away as sometimes good people do bad things. Can't be explained away as nobody's perfect. Couldn't be explained away as we all sin sometimes. The horrifying reality... Ravi Zacharias was not a good man who made mistakes. Rather, he was a deeply evil man who gave the appearance of being a good man. He had a reputation for being one thing, but he was really something quite different. And this is a warning for all of us today. And it's a warning Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, has been giving for over 2,000 years. And we had better have ears to hear What the Spirit is saying to us today. Open your Bible to Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6. should be on page 950 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. (coughs) 
to the angel of the church in Sardis, write. These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Thou shalt not watch. I'll come upon thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Title of the message is A Living Church. Let's pray. Father, today we come and we do desire to have ears to hear what you're saying to us today. Father, the world around us is constantly showing us how easy it is to be one thing in public, something entirely different in private. We see it, politicians, we see it, actors and musicians, we we see it, people we know, we see it, Christian leaders. God, we know this is not what you've called us to be. You've not called us to appear to be anything, but to truly be something. To be your children, to be disciples of Jesus, to be holy. As you are holy. To be fervent in spirit. In our service to you. Father today as we look at this passage. We we need your Holy Spirit to come. To open our ears. We need your Holy Spirit to come and plow up our hearts. So the good seed can sink deep in and bring forth good fruit in our lives. We need your Holy Spirit to come and to convict us. Father, if we have in any way the same sort of thing going on in our lives as the church in Sardis or Ravi or any other people we may have known, let your spirit convict us of this. Bring us to a point of deep and genuine repentance. Help us, Father, to live out. Truly to live out being disciples of Jesus in a world. Help us to to be devoted to you. To bring glory to your name and in, in every aspect of our lives. Fill me this morning with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech, that I could speak your words and your ways for your glory. Use this time today to draw us closer to you. We ask in Jesus name for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. The church in Sardis had in many ways adopted the character of the city of Sardis. Now, some background info on the city of Sardis will help us better understand Jesus' letter. At one time, Sardis had been the capital city of Lydia and was considered one of the greatest cities in the world. The city's history was one of wealth and splendor. The wealth of Sardis was the stuff of legends. According to one legend... The wealth of Sardis came from a river which ran through the middle of the city and it overflowed with gold. Well, true or not, whether there was truly a gold-bearing river in the city, by the time Jesus writes the letter 
to the city of or the church in Sardis. The wealth and splendor of Sardis was a distant memory. The city had fallen into disrepair and deterioration. It had de- deteriorated to the point that when the people of Sardis requested from Rome permission to build a temple to Caesar to worship him, it was denied. Because Caesar did not want a temple with his name on it in a city in the kind of shape Sardis was in. While the wealth and and splendor of Sardis had passed, their boasting about it did not. The people of Sardis were described as soft, lethargic, and complacent. And as the city fell into decay and ruin, the people did nothing to try to fix what was in ruins. Rather than trying to correct what was decaying and what was uh, deteriorating, they began to focus on their past. They began to look back at what was and glory in what had been instead of deal with what was actually going on in the midst of their time, of their life right there. They relied on past glory rather than on present accomplishment. The The church of Sardis or the city of Sardis had a history and a reputation for one thing, wealth and splendor. But their present reality was something quite different. Decay and ruin. We see in verse 1, the church in Sardis had the same problem. They had a reputation for being one thing, alive. But they were really something quite different. They were dead. It seems likely at one time they had been a great church. They had been fired up for Jesus. But this was no longer the case. Now like the city around them, they were soft. They were lethargic. They were complacent. They relied on their past glory rather than on their present faithfulness. We also see right away Jesus knows. I know, he says in verse 1, I know thy works. He always says this. But unlike the churches we've seen previously, when Jesus says, I know your works, there's, there's no air of commendation. He is not about to tell them all the things they've done right. He is not about to tell them all the things they're doing that are good and righteous and true. In fact, Sardis is one of two churches in the seven letters which receives no commendation from Jesus at all. Now, think how significant this is. If you've been here through the other churches, you know some of these churches were deeply involved in sin. Some of these churches had embraced false doctrine. And still, even in those churches, Jesus had found something to come in. Something to say, you're doing this well, keep it up. But the complacent church, the apathetic church, Jesus has no commendation for them. Nothing they're doing well. Nothing they should keep up. This should serve as a warning to us. About how seriously Jesus takes the sin of apathy and the sin of complacency. These are some of the most severe problems a church or an individual disciple of Jesus can have. Complacency and apathy are not virtues in the Christian life. Words like complacency and apathy should never describe disciples of Jesus. They had a reputation for being alive, but they were actually dead. They had a reputation for life because at one time there had been life. At one time they had been fervent in spirit in their service 
to Jesus. But over time, the passion had waned. Apathy, complacency now reigned in their lives. As the old time preachers would say, they'd lost their fire. And they were complacent. They were apathetic. And they were dead. Now, a question, how did they get to this place? How do people who were once fervent in spirit serving Jesus end up dead? How does someone who is dead, how did they ever have a reputation for being alive? And if they were alive, how did they go from being alive and fervent to complacent and dead? I think we find some answers to this in this passage. I think one is partial obedience. You look at verse 2. Jesus says, I have not found thy works perfect before God. The word perfect uh, some render some translations render it as complete. And the idea of their works not being perfect or complete seems to point to the incomplete nature of their service and their devotion to Jesus. They weren't completely obedient to all Jesus had said. They they were partially obedient. Now there are likely several ways they had partially obeyed. Probably they had done what was easy, convenient, and comfortable, rather than doing all Jesus said to do. Jesus says, for instance, to deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow Him, or to deny self and die to self in order to follow Him. Well, that's that's hard, right? So it's probable that what had happened was, rather than do what was hard, they had done what was easy. Rather than do what was challenging, they did what was convenient for them. Right? They did what was comfortable. Nothing beyond their comfort zone. Nothing that really challenged them. I'll, I'll do what's easiest, what's the most comfortable, and what is the most convenient for me in my life. This is partial obedience. And this almost certainly quenches the fire within. We know from what we see here, they had focused on appearing... And not being. One way to partially obey is to focus on what we appear to be rather than on what we actually are. And with this, what we focus on are the external things people will see while neglecting the internal spiritual life people cannot see. Examples of this would be not murdering someone or physically assaulting them, but still hating them. In our heart, contrary to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Not committing adultery or not fornicating, but still reading pornography or looking at pornographic materials. Going to church, but not participating in the life and the service of the church. Or doing those things privately which build our spiritual lives up. Living one way in the community... We're around where people know we're disciples of Jesus and living in an entirely different way when we go out of town and no one knows who we are. Jesus calls this focus on being or appearing instead of being. He calls this cleaning the outside of the cup or decorating a tomb. And he said it leaves us dead on the inside. All of these and and probably more fall under the heading of partial Obedience. Now, time doesn't permit. Go in your Bible, read about King Saul when God told him to go wipe out the Amalekites. He partially obeyed. 
He did most of it. And what God's message to him was, was your partial obedience is as the sin of witchcraft. Right? God was not okay with it then. Jesus is not okay with it now. Partial obedience absolutely quenches the fire within. Another way they had gone from being alive to dead is through gradual drift. Now this isn't explicitly stated in this passage. But it's a truth gleaned from many years of experience in church, in ministry, and studying God's Word. I have never in my life known someone who went from a fully devoted disciple of Jesus being alive to a nominal disciple of Jesus being dead overnight. They didn't go to bed on fire for Jesus and wake up the next day dead. That They didn't go to bed fully devoted and wake up nominally committed. It happened over a period of time. A, a slow but gradual drift away. And we're warned about it in God's Word. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. We're warned to give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, because if we don't, we may let them slip. Now, the word slip carries with it the idea of negligence. Right? So what the author of Hebrews is warning about isn't saying, oh, I'm done, I've had it with Jesus, I'm not there. It's not what he's warning us about. He's warning us about not giving earnest heed to this, and over time we begin to, to gradually, through negligence, abandon. We begin to drift, slowly at first, Probably almost imperceptibly in the early days. But if there's one thing about a gradual drift is the longer it goes on, the further we are from where we intended to be. This not giving earnest heed, being negligent toward the things of God, the word of God. At first, probably won't be noticeable except to those who are most close to us. Give it a few months. Give it a year. Give it more. And then we'll have a reputation for being one thing. But in all actuality, we are something entirely different. Now, Jesus counsels them on how to correct these issues. Verses 2 through 5, he gives a series of commands, exhortations on what they must do to correct their condition. He gives them what I call the five R's. Resist, refrain, remember, repent, and recognize. They'll be up on the board so you don't have to try to remember that that quickly. Resist the pull of complacency. He says in verse 2, be watchful. Watchful essentially means to wake up. Wake up and see what you have become. This sort of drift often comes again through negligence. Think of someone who falls asleep while driving. They fall asleep gradually and then they they probably don't just immediately take a sharp. They just drift into traffic or drift into the ditch. The need, the need is for the person to wake up, to realize they're drifting and to course correct so they stay on the road. Similarly, the people in Sardis are spiritually asleep and they need to, to wake up. They need to see what they've drifted to becoming. They need to recognize where they are and, and do something 
about it. But this warning is not just for those who have already fallen asleep and have drifted into it. It's for those who would say, well, I'm not I'm not there yet. The word for watchful is continuing. It is in the present tense. It means watching isn't a one-time action. It means that I don't drift and wake up and I pull my best self back over. I'm good. It means I stay alert. I look at my life. I examine myself. Am I drifting? Am I partially obedient? Am I doing what's convenient? Am I only worried about what people see and not what's really going on? Take charge of my spiritual life and examine myself. The reason we have to do this is there will almost always be a pull to complacency and apathy because they're easy. They're convenient. And our sinful nature wants to do what's easy. Our sinful nature wants to do what's convenient. Our sinful nature wants us to be and stay comfortable. And we have to watch against that. Am I doing this because it's comfortable? Am I doing this because it's convenient? Am I avoiding the hard things in my service and my devotion to Jesus? We have to be alert to our tendency towards complacency. And then we have to resist its pull. Secondly, we have to refrain from spreading complacency. He tells them to strengthen those who remain that are about to die. Now... Not all in Sardis had succumbed to complacency and apathy. But they were weak, spiritually weak, and they were about to die. They were about to to end up where the complacent people were. And I think it's interesting. Jesus told those who were already complacent and apathetic to strengthen those who were weak and about to die. Don't they seem like the wrong people to do this? I mean, doesn't it seem like you ought to find people who are on fire and go encourage the fire within. So as I was thinking about this, I think the reality is those who are complacent and those who are apathetic are at least partially responsible for these who are weak and about to die. There is, in reality... A way in which apathetic and complacent people have a life-sucking effect on those who are around them. They, They suck the fervency of spirit from those who desire to serve Jesus. When you're fervent in spirit and you want to do what Jesus wants you to do, but but those around you, those who are supposed to be on the same team you are, who are supposed to be wanting the same things you are, they are constantly resisting you. They're constantly criticizing you. They're constantly negative about your zeal. It's like having a wet blanket tossed on your fire. It smothers and eventually kills the fire within Complacency and apathy are like the plague. They're highly contagious. And they spread through contact. So Jesus says, if we're complacent, we refrain from spreading that to others. Thirdly, remember life before complacency. Next, Jesus tells them to remember, therefore, how they had received and heard. 
Jesus is calling them to remember what it was like when they first heard the gospel and were saved. They needed to remember how the gospel message of what God has done for us in Jesus had first gripped their hearts. How the gospel had first produced a devotion and service to Jesus. How the, they were fervent in spirit serving Jesus. How they longed to know Jesus better and make Him known around them. In short, they were to remember that complacency and apathy were not always who they were. Yes, this was who they were now, but this is not how they had always been. Remember. Remember when you were first saved. Remember when you were on fire. Remember when the fire of another person encouraged you rather than convicted you. Remember. Remember. When we drift into complacency and apathy and stay there a while, we tend to forget it hasn't always been this way. The longer we're there, the less likely it is for us to remember the days from before. That's why Jesus said to remember Think back. Remember. They were to repent of complacency. Jesus is calling them on the carpet for what they've done. And he tells them to repent. Now, this is important. He's not calling them on the carpet to beat them down. He's not calling them on the carpet to make them feel bad. None of that is the point. The point is to call them to turn. To turn from their complacency, to turn from their apathy and and turn back to Him. To begin to be fervent in spirit in their service to Him again. I mean, it's an important thing for us to understand. Jesus loves them and us too much to leave us complacent. He loves them and us too much to leave us apathetic. He will never look at our complacent and apathetic lives and say, good enough. At least you're not living in wicked, immoral sin. He loves us too much for that. He loves us too much to leave us in this dead state. He will come. He will convict. And His message will be the same. Repent. Turn from this. Turn to Me. So He can revive us. And put life where death was beginning to reign. And then recognize the dangers of complacency. They do not heed Jesus' commands to resist, refrain, remember, and repent. Jesus says, I will come only as a thief. Thou shalt know in what hour I will come. He will come upon them suddenly, and He will bring judgment upon them. Two critical factors about this last part we have to see. It is, in fact, a warning of judgment. There is no getting around the fact Those who remain in a state of complacency and apathy will face the sure and certain judgment of God. Second fact is, this judgment will come suddenly. The idea of a thief in the night when we don't know the hour will come upon us. Picture suddenness, surprise. Jesus is telling them and us we may not have the time we think to put him off now and get squared away. Later. Here's what I mean. If we are complacent, if we have drifted into complacency and apathy, if we're resting on what we were in the past rather than on what God's doing in our lives in the present, at this point we recognize it. We may well have recognized we were already there before we came in. And the temptation 
we'll face is to say, I recognize this isn't right, but I'll work on it later. And later is some nebulous time in the future, right? It may be later when our lives are less busy, when our lives are less crazy, later when other things are going or are not going on like they are now. Jesus' point is we don't have a guarantee this later date will actually happen. At any moment, one of two things could happen to us. Jesus could return as a thief in the night. Or Jesus could rightly call us into judgment. We could die at any moment. Life teaches us this, doesn't it? Life teaches us that people are healthy and fine one day and gone the next. We we do not necessarily have the time to just sit and wait and say later, sometime later, we need to hear and heed instantly. There is an urgency to the command to resist, refrain, remember and repent. We must hear and urgently heed Jesus' commands. Now, in verse four, we see not everybody again had drifted into this way. And Jesus gives promises to these who are being faithful. Now, to me, I think it must have been encouraging to those who had remained faithful and remained faithful, being fervent in spirit, serving Jesus amidst a dead church to hear Jesus say, I see you. I know you're there. I know you're still holding on. And he gives them a, a threefold promise. One, they'll walk with him in white. White robes are mentioned several times in the book of Revelation, and they always seem to refer to being morally and spiritually pure. The promise for those who resist the pull of complacency or who are complacent and overcome it is they will be clothed in the righteousness of God given to those who receive the washing. Regeneration of the Holy Spirit comes through faith in Jesus. The second promise is that He will not blot their name out of the book of life. This would have been significant to the Jewish or to the the Roman believers here. The book of life, it refers to the heavenly registry of those who have repented of their sins and believed in Jesus and been saved by Jesus. We first read about it in the book of Exodus, where the people have rebelled and Moses asked God to blot his name out of the book so that they can remain saved. We later read about the book on the day of judgment where God opens the book to see if their names are in the book of life. The book symbolizes God's knowledge of who belong to him. Now, here's how this would have applied to a Roman citizen. Roman cities at this time had registry books containing the names of citizens in good standing. Now, for us, that can seem overwhelming. How could a city have a name of all the citizens? Well, everybody, not like in America, where everybody born in Rome wasn't a Roman citizen. There were very specific things that you had to have. In fact, very few Romans, who the people who lived in the empire of Rome, were actually Roman citizens. So in a city the size of Gaiman, there, there might only be a couple of thousand people who were actually citizens. And it wasn't that difficult for them to keep up with it. Now, the problem with citizenship in, in the Roman Empire was there was a way to lose it. 
There was a way to lose your citizenship. And when it was, they went to the book which had your name in it as a citizen in good standing. And they blotted the name out. Now, they couldn't erase it because erasable ink didn't exist. They didn't write it in pencil because pencils, I don't know if they existed or not, but they didn't use them. They weren't permanent. So they would dip the pen in the ink and they would blot over it. Blot, 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 blot. And now your name was gone. And you were no longer, there was no proof that you had ever been a Roman citizen. It was done. You were forever blotted out. Jesus says those who overcome will not be blotted out. Jesus promises those who remain faithful, those who overcome, they are promised future honor, eternal life, and they are guaranteed citizenship in heaven. Their name will not be blotted out. And while this is a promise for the overcomers, surely we have to see this as a warning for those who don't. What happens if someone remains complacent and apathetic? They don't endure the end in faithfulness to Jesus. What happens if they don't overcome the complacency and return to the way things had been? Isn't this at least a, an implicit warning? Their name will be blotted out. There is those who choose complacency and apathy. They have no guarantees. Heaven will be their home. They have no guarantees on the day of judgment. Their name will be in the book of life. Stern warning. Indeed. Also, Jesus says, I I will confess his name before my father. Before his angels. Those who overcome, those who remain faithful. Jesus will announce to the host of heaven. These people are his faithful Disciples. This is simply a fulfillment of something Jesus had said earlier. Those who confess him before men, he will confess before his father and the angels in heaven. Disciples of Jesus can have no greater reward than to one day hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter to the joy of thy Lord. I think I can say clearly, we all want to be overcomers. None, none of us want to end up Like Sardis. How do we keep ourselves from drifting into complacency and apathy when the world, the flesh, and the devil are continually pulling us toward apathy? Because again, you know, the world, the world is okay with a nominal disciple of Jesus. The world doesn't care if we're half-hearted, nominally involved, complacently committed. The world is fine with that. Our sinful nature is fine with that. The devil is fine with that. And so the pull of of everything around us, everything kind of even within us, is the pull of apathy, the pull of complacency. How do we keep from giving in to that? Well, look again at verse 1. The angel of the church at Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Jesus reveals himself to be the one with the seven spirits of God. Now, we've seen this phrase before, Revelation 1.4. And it almost certainly a reference to Isaiah 1.12, where we're told the Holy Spirit is the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. 
The idea of the seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit seemed to be the perfection of the Holy Spirit and or the fullness of the spirit resting on Jesus. In this case, it seems to refer to the fullness of the spirit resting on Jesus. When the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus after his baptism, we're told he had the spirit without measure and without limit in John 3 and 34. Part of the reason Jesus had the spirit without measure and without limit is he would be the one who gives the spirit. John the Baptist said of Jesus, he is the one who would baptize his followers with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost makes it clear Jesus is the one who pours out the Holy Spirit on the church. But Jesus also says he has the seven stars. Seven stars represent the seven angels or the seven pastors of the seven churches. So what did this mean? Jesus has the fullness of the Spirit. Jesus has the pastors. What did it mean for the disciples in Sardis? What does it mean for disciples in Gaiman? There are two passages, I believe, bear weight on this answer. To help us to understand why Jesus revealed himself in this way to a people who were apathetic and complacent. One is Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 14, the valley of dry bones. A valley filled with dead, dry bones, but they come to life. How do they come to life? They come to life as the prophet prophesies the way God says, when God says, and what God says. And they they gather together, and then the Spirit of God comes upon them, and they become living. They come to life. Another passage is John 6 and 63. Jesus' teaching says the flesh profits nothing, but the Spirit gives life. And His words, His words are Spirit and His words are life. And here's how these two passages help us understand Jesus' revelation of Himself to a complacent and an apathetic people who had a reputation for being alive but were actually dead. In both passages, it was the Word of God and the Spirit of God who worked together to bring life where death once reigned. While the church in Sardis had a reputation for being alive, they were truly dead. What did they need? They needed to be made alive through the Word of God and through the Spirit of God. Jesus has both. Normally when we talk about the Word of God and the Spirit of God in this way, we think in terms of the preaching of the Word and the power of the Spirit. And surely there's an element of this which is meant here. But I think the bigger picture is to believe the Word and to live in the Spirit. I say this because it is impossible for us to believe the Word, live in the Spirit, and be apathetic and complacent at the same time. Consider what God's Word tells us about God's Spirit in relation to disciples of Jesus. When we're saved, we're born again through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're indwelt and sealed by the Holy Spirit. We're gifted and empowered by the Spirit. All of this happens immediately. The moment we're saved, all of this is going on at one time. And the Bible calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. The power. Think of the power in the Spirit who lives within us. So if the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives in us and leads us, And produces fruit in us. And empowers us. Shouldn't this be seen. In some way. Think about it this way. 
The word of God tells us the spirit of God does all of this and more in us and through us and for us. But for what point and for what purpose? Are we spirit filled and spirit led and spirit empowered after we've been born again through the spirit so we can barely keep from cussing somebody out at Walmart or on social media? Are we born again? Through the Spirit and filled and empowered by the Spirit to essentially stay the same. Week after week, month after month, year after year. Are we Spirit filled, Spirit led, Spirit empowered after we've been born through the Spirit. So that we can look at the past at what was rather than look to the future at what God wants to do for us in the future. Are we Spirit filled, Spirit led and Spirit empowered after we've been born through the Spirit. To have a reputation for being alive while actually being dead. Surely not. Surely, if the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives in us, surely there should be more. But if this is us, if we have drifted here and we need to be revived, Be sure of this. Jesus alone has what we need. We live seeking the Son of God, believing the Word of God, so we can remain passionate through the Spirit of God. Now, Jesus has been telling us this since the days of His earthly ministry. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst... Let him come to me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spake of the spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. The Holy Ghost was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Seek the son of God. If any man thirst, let him come unto me. Believe the word of God. He that believeth on me as scripture hath said. Live in the spirit of God. He spake of the spirit which they that believe on him should receive. If you've drifted into a condition similar to that of Sardis. This is the key. This is the way out. We seek the son. Believing the word So we can be filled and passionate through the Spirit. But if we're here and we see this and we say, I'm not there, but I don't want to be there. How do I keep from drifting like this? This is still the answer. We live our lives seeking the Son of God. Believing the Word of God. So we can remain passionate through the Spirit of God. This is our need. This is how we live our lives as disciples of Jesus. This, Jesus would call this in John 15, abiding in Him. If we abide in Him and He in us, we will not drift into complacency. If we seek Him, believing the Word and what it says about what the Spirit can and will do in us and through us and for us, Jesus will. The Bible says... If God will give us, if we being evil will give good things to our children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? If we seek and if we believe, we will receive. 
the reality is the ball's in our court. The truth has been laid before us. The, the path to fervency, to passion, the path to, to staying, to being overcoming complacency, it's laid out clearly. Seek the Son, believe the Word, be filled with the Spirit. The question is, are we willing to do that? Are we willing to leave what's easy and comfortable and convenient? Because this won't be. Are we willing to fully obey instead of partially obey? Because this won't come if we're worried about what people think and not about what we truly are. Are we willing to take diligent heed? Because this won't happen if we don't. Do we recognize the danger of complacency? Because if we don't, we won't seek, right? So at this point, Jesus stands and he invites us as he did them. If any man thirst, let him come to me. Promises we'll receive. If we come, if we believe, we will receive. So the question for you, the question for me, will I come? Do I believe? Because if I do, I will receive. So what we're going to do is have a time right now for us to do this. There's not going to be a much to stand. There's not going to be any music for invitation. Just going to be a time. You can come to the altars. I'm going to pray up here at the steps. You can pray where you are. You can pray at the altar. But if you... Want to be sure you overcome. And you want to be sure you don't drift into complacency. Spend this time seeking the Son. Believing the Word. And receiving the Spirit. So I ask you to stand. All that want to come to the altar can. And pray where you are. We're just going to spend this time praying.